I know a couple things. I know I said we were going to do uh, chapters two through five today, um, but I also didn't want to print like two questions on the top of a whole new page and then have to make a bunch of copies of it. So end of, end of chapter four got me to the bottom of this page, so that's where I stopped. I told you, it's going to be a little trial and error. We'll kind of see how long it takes us to get through it. Um, on the front cover of the, the page, you see the waves there at the top. I don't know if this is going to be worth it or not, but kind of one of the things I'm thinking in my mind, one of the examples or visuals I'd like to have as part of this Bible class is, um, you know, this, the theme that we're going through is this constant connection of water throughout the Bible, right? And so, um, and then Pastor Berg, he references like the red line that kind of goes through Scripture. So um, if you can imagine that you've got the waves there at the top, so this picture of water, and then the, the line that goes through um, is actually red. But again, I didn't want to have to print a copy, uh, a color copy for one line. So hopefully you can just like visually um, uh, picture it. And I don't even know, if, like I said, if it's worth it. But my thought was to, to kind of, as we go throughout the new sections, is to add a different name, you know, a different title, a different event, so that by the end of the class, you see all of kind of the, the connected events throughout it. We'll, we'll see how it looks. Maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's not. But it was really easy to get three on there, so that's where we're going to start. All right? So, um, were there any, did anybody need a book before? You got Janet's book. I do. <laughs> well, that's okay. What's that? Thank you. No, no, no. I have, oh. I have copies. Yeah, yeah. No, you're good. I just want to make sure she knew it. Correct. Yes. Um, this is mine. I was telling everybody. You can tell it's mine because I left it on the table and the kids got after it. So it's got coffee, it's got orange juice, it's got, I don't know, some of the, some of the pages are stuck to, oh yeah, if only they read it. I wouldn't have been so upset. All right. Um, okay, so are there any questions about what we talked about last week before we begin? I, I just kind of like to begin that way so we don't leave anything hanging. Um, looking at the foreword and the intro, or really chapter one. Is today we're going to actually kind of get into the beginning of this, this, this journey okay, through Scripture. We're going to start there with creation. Um, we're going to look at chapter two, a watery creation. Um, question number one. So, I, I don't know, if you're just getting your book now, you probably weren't able to read ahead, but hopefully some of you were able to. Um, it's just going to save us time as we go through. I know we read last week, but we're not going to do that every week, um, unless there's like big chunks that we want to kind of dive into. So here's the first question on creation. Recall the references to water in the account of creation from Genesis chapter 1. Um, and the word there that I have, if you've never seen Hebrew, um, that is the word. Um, mayim. So that's the word for, for water in Hebrew. Now what's really interesting is um, in the beginning God created the heavens. The word for heaven um, <clears throat> is just that. It's water with the, the kind of the, the dual um, um, prefix on it. So heavens is really kind of just the, the waters, which makes sense when you get into creation, right? Um, so water, mayim, right? Um, what, what water references do we have in the account of creation? Just shout them out. It seemed, yeah, it seems like water's there, which is interesting, right? Um, because before anything is created, the Spirit is hovering over the waters of the deep, right? 
Um, and then you go later on in 2 Peter, um, and what does, uh, what does Peter say that everything, and Dr. Berg even references this passage in chapter 2, that everything was formed um, with water and by water, right? Um, so it... Uh, Seems present already. What else? What other references do we have to water? Did I warn you guys about my handwriting? Well, if I didn't, now you know. Other references to water to creation? Okay. God separated the waters. Oh, now you're going to see I don't know how to spell either. Separated... Waters. There was the water above and the water below, right? Um, and, and God separates them, puts a firmament in between them, right? So we've got, we've got water above, water below. What else? Yeah. Separated water from the land. Okay. Separated waters from each other and from land. Good. Okay, so we've got a couple different, right? The Lord, the Lord telling water, you know, here's where you go, here's, here's where you don't go. Alright, what else? What other references to water do we have? Chapter 1. Just the account of creation. Okay. Alright, that's kind of this right here. Yeah, separating, but also then in doing that. Yep. Okay, right, yeah. Um, he, he creates those, and then what does he do with them? Fills them, right, yeah. Actually, um, the waters are teeming with sea creatures, right? Um, not, not like teamwork. They all got together and, you know... Um, T-E-E-M. Do you know what it means to team? There's so many you can't. Yeah. Jump. Like to the point where it's like almost overflowing, right? And when we, when we do this in, in Bible information class, I always like to point out, you know, here's just one of those like the wisdom of God. Because on the same day he fills, uh, the waters are teeming with fish and sea creatures, but he also fills the skies with birds. Imagine if those were reversed. If he, teamed, if he teamed the sky with birds, right? Alfred Hitchcock made a movie on that. Um, but then, you know, there were only as many fish in the sea as there are birds in the air now. We, we would have fished that thing dry generations ago, right? Um, any other references to water? I think that's probably pretty good there in Genesis chapter 1, right? Um, what do we already learn about water at the creation that we still know uh, to be true today? What does is, what is all of this tell us about water? It's essential, right? It, it is so uh, monumentally prevalent, right, um, that, that you can hardly go a day in creation without water being referenced, right? Even before the creation begins, there's water, right? And, and we still know this to be true, right? You can't have a civilization without access to water, right? Our bodies, um, what are they, 90-some percent made of water, right? Um, you, you cannot have life without water, and God is already making that abundantly clear at creation, right? How important this, this water is. Um, and I think that's going to kind of serve a purpose as we go forward in this, right? Number two, we're, we're jumping ahead now to the New Testament. This is in chapter two. According to John chapter one, John says that Jesus is the Word who is both with God and is God at creation. What is John saying about Jesus' role in and his role, um, his relationship? with creation. Take a look at the passages below. Does someone want to read that verse from John 1? 
Verses 1 and 2, please. Please. Okay, so that's the passage we're referencing, right? Um, the, the, the two books of the Bible that begin with that phrase, in the beginning, right? Genesis and John, right? So we're talking about in the beginning. And what's interesting, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe this is a little deep dive, um, but what is really interesting is the very first word in the Bible is that word, in the beginning, um, it's kind of a, a, a compound word. Um, bereshit is the word. Um, and the word rash is the main word of that, um, which is beginning, or head, or crown, or, you know, um, author, right? The head honcho. Um, so if somebody says, hey, um, you know, everything begins and ends with me, that person's in charge, right? And what I think is interesting is you can also read and understand in view of John chapter 1, when we read in Genesis 1, in the beginning, you could also read that as in the head or in the author or in the, you know, the first place, the first person, the first position, um, and, and when we see in John chapter 1, who is that? Who is, who is everything in which all things have their beginning? It, it's, yeah, it, it's really Jesus. Um, I mean, in, in this idea that in Jesus, God made the heavens and the earth. Right? In the, the head right? Rosh. In the head, God made the, the heavens and the earth. In Christ, all things come together. And we see this in Colossians 1. I'm not making this up. Someone want to read the next one? Colossians chapter 1. Please, Brent. So, take a look at that second question again then. What is John saying about Jesus' role in and his relationship with creation? First of all, what is Jesus' role in creation? Okay. So this is important for us to remember. Because I think sometimes we, we, we have maybe like almost like a tritheistic view of God. And what I mean by that is <clears throat> it's easier for us to view God as just being one or being three separate persons. But the closer we try and bring those together, we, you know, our, our, our wires start to cross and we just kind of give up. And that's fine, Right? This, this is why God says, believe, not figure it out. But I think sometimes when, like, even, for example, when we, we confessed, as we did today, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Whose job was it to create? God the Father. Well, what was Jesus and the Spirit doing? Well, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, not really doing anything. And Jesus, well, we don't really think about Jesus until we see him in a manger in Bethlehem, right? Or maybe when we get some sort of Old Testament prophecy of the coming Jesus. Um, so, so these passages, I think like Colossians and John, are really important for us to remember that Jesus is just as much the creator as the Father is the creator, right? That Jesus is not a creation. He is the creator, that Jesus is not a creature. He is the creator. Okay? Um, 
And, and so to know that that's his role in creation, that Jesus is there, and, and I like the, the picture that Dr. Berg references. Did you, did you catch that? Um, Irenaeus, again, this is easier to grasp, right? Um, Irenaeus, the ancient church father, right, said, uh, God the Father was the creator, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit were the hands that he used to create everything, right? Easier to picture, right? One head, one person, two hands, there's your three, right? Always trying to make sense of it. Um, but it's a good picture, right? It's something to, to know that all three were there active at creation. So we could say that in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Yep. Yeah. You say exactly what John said. Yeah, where was Jesus at creation? He's God. He's creating, right? He is, he is God. At the same time, we, we also get this hint of the, com the complexity of the Trinity. He's not only God, he's also with God, right? I, yeah, that's when your mind starts to go, time out. Yeah, right? Um, and you just have to let both of these be true. God, how can this be true? Um, God says, I know how it's true. Let that be enough. Okay. Sure. Yeah. And then when he died, he became Christ. And so you do see like three different areas there. So, so here's something that I, I, I do, I, I show people that I think is helpful. So here is how um, I think is a beneficial way to, to picture Jesus, right? So um, if this is kind of the, the creation, right? This is kind of the beginning of time, right? Jesus, um, along with uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's say there's the Trinity, right? But we're just highlighting Jesus at the moment, right? Jesus has no beginning, right? He, is, he exists before the creation of the world. That's why it says, in the beginning, God, right? It doesn't say, um, God started, God began. It says, in the beginning, when, when time began, God already was, right? Who is that God? Well, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we think about Jesus ex existing, right? He is eternal. It is one of the, the characteristics of our triune God, right? He is eternal. Now, what happens at about uh, roughly 4 B.C., give or take? I know. That's going to upset the apple cart, but that's probably more accurate. Um, probably around 4 B.C., what happens? And I think that's why this word is so important. The incarnation of Christ. Um, literally what that, that word means is, this is when Jesus became flesh. Okay, so, so there was a time conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that Jesus, who is true God, who is divine, who has always and will always exist, now took on human flesh. And now ex exists as true man and true God forever and ever. Okay, so... so yeah, th this is why I bring it up, because we don't want to think of, well, when did Jesus begin? Well, when he was born. Well, no, that, that, that we can say that about us as human beings, right? No, this was the moment when Jesus, who is divine, who is true God, took on human flesh. When the invisible God became visible, right? And now what do we have? Now we have Jesus, who is both true God and true man, and will forever always be that. Okay. Yes. So what does it mean when they say he's the firstborn of all creation? Firstborn is different than first created, right? So this is the key. Um, because people will try and use this verse and say, well, see, there you go, right? Jesus is the firstborn above all creation. That means that he could not have been there at creation. Well, no. You have to understand the context of, of what, what, Paul is <coughs> um, what Paul is talking about. When he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. you got to start there. 
What is he talking about? Jesus is God, but he's the visible incarnation of true God. So if he is God, well, then he must always exist. It's sort of like, there's a, I always love these, um, on a slow day um, on the internet, you know, when you're in some of these like private groups on Facebook, I'm, I'm in a couple like <coughs> confessional Lutheran ones and other ones that aren't. Um, you know, just to ask the question, agree or disagree, Mary is the mother of God. Agree or disagree? No, 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 no. <laughs> I didn't ask for you to clarify the question. I made a statement. Agree or disagree, Jesus is the mother of God. Or Mary, Mary is the mother of God. Disagree. disagree. So Jesus is not true God. Oh. But Mary is the mother of Jesus. And who's Jesus? Well, I know he's part of God, but God... He's not part of God. God That's the issue. Correct. Correct. But see, here's the point. The point of the question is to say, is this a question about Mary, oh. or is it a question about Jesus? And, and it's more of a question or a statement about Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is true God? then that's not a difficult statement to, to answer. Mary is the mother of God. Of course she is, because Jesus is God. End of story, right? But, but because we, we, we want to try and think of this tritheistic approach, right? Well, Jesus is part God, or he's sort of God, or he's less than God the Father. And, and a lot of that has to do with this idea that I think we think God the Father has always existed, but there was a time when Jesus was not. And my point in bringing this up is to say, no, if Jesus is true God, not part of God, if he is true God, which he is, John 1 tells us, he's with God and he is God, then there was never a time when Jesus was not. There was a time when Jesus did not have flesh, but there was not a time when Jesus was not. Okay? Sure, right? Yeah, because somebody asked me that question once, and I didn't know how to answer it. Um, would, would Jesus have had the, the, the DNA matching with Mary? Like, would you have been able to take his DNA and say, you know, if there was like a, a maternity test, like Joseph was like, hey, you know, I know this kid isn't mine. Um, you know, let's do the, let's do the swab test. Would that have come back? Would Jesus' DNA have matched Mary's? Or does he have some sort of random divine DNA that would have matched no one? And, and I really wrestled with that question for a long time, but I think it's kind of the exact same thing on the other side. Do we really believe that Jesus is true man, born of the Virgin Mary? Well, then of course he would have had DNA that would have matched hers. Yeah, right? I guess he could have, but, but to what end? But that wouldn't be part of the, the point of it is to say that Jesus is true man, born of a woman, right? Born of this very woman. Um, sure they would. Really right, rightly so, because they're right. <laughs> because she is. You can tell your, your Roman Catholic friends on Monday, Peter, hey, we got some common ground. <laughs> Jesus is the mother of God. I just learned that on Sunday. <laughs> Go ahead. Give them my phone number. I don't not, not say I'm going to answer it, but they can call me. But, but this is not, and when I said this is, this is deep dive stuff, when you're talking about the two natures of Christ, you are wading in the waters of about as deep as Scripture gets. And we're, we're just, we're kind of still trying to stay in the, the kiddie pool end. But if, if this, yeah, if this is rough stuff, it's because the, the two natures of Christ is about as complex as Scripture gets. Okay? Um, but I still think we, we come back to those questions. Is Jesus true God? Is he true man? Is he 100% of each? Yes. Right? 
So we have to keep those in mind. So the question then is, that Mitzi asked, what does it mean then that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation? Well, look at the rest of the context. And then think about it in this light. What did it mean in the Old Testament to be the firstborn? You were in charge. Um, it all belonged to you. The firstborn over all creation is not taught, it has nothing to do with the beginning of Jesus. It has nothing to do with him coming into existence. Claiming Jesus as the firstborn of all creation says two things. Number one, that he is true God and true man. That, there, that he actually did take on human flesh, that he is born. But even more so, there are no rulers or authorities or anything else, right? He is head over them all. He's the firstborn over all creation. Um, this is the idea then in Ephesians 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven, what does God the Father do? He gives them everything back, all of his power, all of his authority, all of his glory, all of his honor. Why? Because he is the firstborn above all creation. He is the one who possesses it all. Everything will be placed under his feet, Paul says. All of his enemies will, ma will be made a footstool for him, right? It's talking about not the beginning of Jesus, firstborn. That's what we think of. When we, when we hear firstborn, we think, you're the oldest kid, right? That's not what Paul's talking about. Um, firstborn is talking more about power, authority, honor, glory, Right? Um, and that's why he goes on to emphasize at the end, he is before all things. Not just before, timeline-wise, he's existed before all things, but he is before in supremacy, in authority, in power. All things are under his rule. Okay? Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, well, but, but I think this, this is the whole point. Number one, again, he's true man, right? So he is born. However, think about how important that theme is throughout the Bible, to be the firstborn, right? Think of Isaac and Jacob. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, that is such an important thing, to have the birthright, to have the, the double portion of the inheritance, Paul will reference this also in 1 Corinthians 15 in a different way, if you want a different picture. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul does not call Jesus the firstborn, but he calls him the first fruit. Now, what was the first fruit offering in the Old Testament? The very first crop that sprung up. You knocked it down, you took it into the temple, you sacrificed it to God, right? Now, what were you saying with that? Yes, God, here is my first, here is my best. I'm acknowledging that all of it comes from you and belongs to you, but I'm also in doing this, exercising my trust that while you are receiving the first, it will not be the last. So what does it mean that Jesus rises from the dead and is the first fruit of all of those who fall asleep in him? That he is the first one to rise from the dead. Again, not necessarily time-wise. There are other people who had risen from the dead. But he is the first fruit, meaning that because Jesus died and rose, when he now says to you, because I live, you also will live, you can trust him. Because though he was the first... He is guaranteeing that he will not be the last to be raised. So there's a lot of different ways you can describe Jesus. And I, I think Paul is getting after a very important thing. The theme of the rest of the book of Colossians is Christ is supreme. He is over all things. That's the whole theme of the letter. And so it makes sense then when he's talking about that, who in a family is going to be um, the ultimate authority? Well, it's the firstborn, right? 
He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who, who, who makes the decisions, who has the authority, who has all the possessions, who has all the power. Who is that in creation? In all things created, heaven and earth, that's Jesus. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Man, half hour, two questions. I didn't think that was going to happen. Um, what similarities does Dr. Berg note between water and words? I thought this was really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, um, the immense power that both of them possess, right? Um, uh, A, that water, yes, you needed to live, but it can also destroy. We're going to see that, obviously, when we get to the flood, when we get to the Red Sea, right? Um, words are, are in much the same way, right? Um, without words, what kind of life do we have? kind of mentioned it in the, in the sermon this morning, right? Um, to have a God without words is a terrifying thing. Yeah, th this, this is why, you know, when people want to try and say, like, uh, nobody has said to me, said this to me for years, but, but I used to hear it a, a lot more. Um, you know, Pastor, yeah, I'm sorry I wasn't in church today. I was out hiking in the mountains. That's my church. Um, I like to experience God out in nature, God in creation. Because if God is everywhere, then he's with me when I catch a wave, and he's with me when I, when I hike a trail. Is that true? Sure. But what happens when that wave comes crashing over you and starts to drown you? What happens when, when you're walking on that trail, and the mountain starts to quake and split in half, and a wildfire breaks out? What is God saying to you? Well, Whatever it is, it seems pretty darn terrifying, right? When you come here and you actually hear and listen to the real words of God, what does he say to you? I forgive you all your sins. Waves don't do that. Mountains don't do that. You see, if you only want to experience God out in nature, then you run the risk of being terrified of God. Because nature can be a terrifying place. Right? If you don't want to tie God to his words, um, then you are left up to trying to impose or assume what God is trying to say to you through nature. And when you got a cool breeze brushing across your face and you're sitting on the ocean, man, that's great. But go out in that ocean or get lost up in that mountain. And then what happens? Right? So I would say that's kind of the difference. Um, so so this, this connection between water and words and the power that they have, right? For good, um, you know, what, what, is, what is a marriage if a husband and wife never say I love you? Um, that should not be something that you assume every day. You can assume that your spouse loves you. Um, they made that promise. But if it's true, then don't let a day go by without saying it. Because your spouse will rightly start to wonder whether or not it is still true. Rightly so. Okay? Um, the power of water, the power of words. What does the account of creation teach us about baptism? Dr. Berg has a lot to say on this kind of toward the end of the chapter. Okay, so, so let's think about creation. What is creation? It is God speaking into existence that which was not. Let there be light. There was no light. God spoke. Now there's light. What is baptism? God speaking into existence a Christian. It's God speaking into existence faith. 
It's God taking this formless, empty human being who's not just an unbeliever, but is a natural-born enemy of God. And God, through the power of his creative word, using water connected with that word, and creating faith, creating a Christian, right? Um, I think the connection between creation and baptism is, is amazing. It's beautiful. God speaks into existence that which was not. So, so when people want to talk about, this is why you're going to run into different understandings and approaches, and this is something that Dr. Berg intentionally does not go into in his book. Different teachings about baptism, right? That's not the point of it. Um, but, but I think underlying all of this, the connection between creation and baptism, there, there will be no connection there <clears throat> for someone who says that baptism is something that you do when you make a decision for Jesus. Because then, that, then the connection would have to be something like, well, you had something to do with your creation. You had to make some decision on when you wanted to be born. And your being brought physically into this world was a totally passive thing. Um, I don't know. I'm going to say it because it was funny to me. Um, I saw a, a, a line or a picture on the internet the other day. This dad was going down a water slide. And you know, little kids, they're usually more connected to mom because mom does everything for them. And the, the picture with his dad and his little kid between his legs going on the water slide, and it said, kids, make sure you thank your dad um, for being born, which seems like a really weird thing to do. But it says, um, because your mom probably wasn't even in the mood. <laughs> and I thought that was good. All right. We got, we got some sort of role. I like it. I like it. Um, so th there, there will be no connection, right? Because then if you're going to say that baptism is my decision in order to become a Christian, and the connection then to creation would be, well, then I had to play some role in my creation. And no Christian would say that. So you're going to say you have no role in your physical creation, but that your spiritual creation, your being born again, that is somehow you're doing, your decision, but when we see the connection that exists there, we say, this is all God's doing. God brought me into the world physically. He created me. But he also brought me into his kingdom spiritually. All right. Um, that thing. And I had it out today. All right. Anything else on that? Chapter 2. Creation. Make sense? Okay, let's go to chapter 3 then, the river of Eden, pages 8 through 11. When people are forced to drink tainted water, it's typically the fault of poor planning or mismanagement by a local government or municipality. I'm thinking, of course, of Flint. Um, if any of you remember that, Flint, Michigan, um, not far from where my bride is from. Um, right? The city knew it, did nothing about it. Right? Just let everything kind of just waste away, and, and um, they, they knew what was going on, but they did nothing. Right? So, so when people drink tainted water, it typically is not something they choose to do, but it's forced on them. Right? Um, in the Bible, however, with whom does the fault lie? If you're drinking tainted water in the Bible, who's to blame? Yourself, right? Um, what, uh, what examples does Dr. Berg reference? Okay, one of, one of my favorite, right? Um, and, I, and I, yeah, I, I remember this because I had a, uh, a professor tell me once um, that that every sermon, the law portion of your sermon, whatever that might be, should really be a reenactment of the golden calf. And what he meant by that was, what happened? Moses came down, he saw the golden calf, he burned it, um, 
um, and scattered it over the water and then told the Israelites, drink it. So he said the, the point of the kind of law preaching to your people should be to take their idols, melt them down, and then force them to drink it. You want this to be your God? Here you go. Drink up. Choke on it. This is what it'll do for you. Right? Um, oh, that's pretty harsh. Um, but actually pretty accurate, right? That's kind of the picture. That's the point. So the Israelites were to blame. They're drinking their own idolatry, right? Um, one more example, maybe. Yeah, right? The, the Nile turning to blood, right? This act of judgment that God brings um, on the Israelites, or on the, the Egyptians, right? So this idea that, that, that bitter water, tainted water, is something that when we see it in Scripture now, it always comes as the result of sin, right? And the people who are drinking it are the ones responsible for it being tainted in the first place, okay? Question six, in contrast to the bitter water of sin, what water does God provide? See John 4, 1 through 26. He, uh, Dr. Berg references it in the chapter. Whose story is that? John 4. The Samaritan woman, right? Um, <clears throat> what water does, does God provide the Samaritan woman? True. Um, in what form? Yeah. How? What is, it, what is it that is actually the water that is going to make this woman never be thirsty again? She was looking for actual water, right? Tell me where this water is so I can go get it. I don't have to keep coming back to this well, right? What does Jesus say? The water I'm talking about is me. I am the water of life, right? So in response to the bitter water that we are forced to drink because of our own sin, what water does God provide? He gives Jesus. He gives us Jesus. And, and now, the, I love the way that Jesus describes it. It's this wellspring, right, that, that bubbles up in our life, that overflows. And, and we can say at the same time that because I have Jesus, I am never thirsty and yet at the same time, I always thirst for Jesus. Right? I'm never thirsty in the sense of, I don't know where to go to get the water that I need. I know who it is. I know what he's done for me. I know what it means to me. I know who I am now in view of him. Right? I never thirst in the sense that I don't have to go out into the world and try and find something that is going to give me nourishment and sustenance. I have it. But knowing that's what he is and what he gives me, I never want to be without him. Okay? What is the result of this new water? Yeah. It's, it's a whole new life. Right? It's this... It's this it's this rebirth, it's this rejuvenation. It's a whole new outlook on life. Um, that, that life is now not a constant search of trying to find that which is going to, to bring me um, sustenance. But to know that in Christ I, I have everything I need. Um, it's a whole new life. Uh, what connection to baptism does Dr. Berg make at the conclusion of this chapter? Okay, yeah, so the, the idea that we're still going to have to drink bitter water in this life, right? Um, and that oftentimes come, comes in the form of suffering and, and loss and all those, those kinds of things. But it's got, to do, it's got a new purpose now, right? Instead of the purpose of just drinking our idols to our own destruction, the Lord brings suffering and, and pain into our lives to what? 
to bring us closer to himself, right? To always keep us connected to his suffering, to keep our hand on his cross, that my suffer is never void of his, right? Um, that my suffering is always viewed in the light of his. And if his suffering was for the salvation of the world, what does that say about my suffering, right? That if, that if his suffering accomplished the world's greatest good, what is God doing through mine? Yeah? Um, I, the, just the last pa uh, uh, paragraph there, bottom of page 11. Um, he made us his with another water event. Um, there's, a, there's a section in there where he talks about vocation, right? Um, this new life that, that God gives us. Um, is now a, a new way to view our role and our purpose in this world, right? That the doctrine of vocation says my goal and purpose in life is now not to serve myself, but to serve the neighbor that God places in front of me, whether it be a spouse or children or grandchildren or a neighbor or a coworker or family or whoever it might be, right? Um, and, and so all of this, this, this new life, this new purpose, this new name, all of this is given. Um, and in giving us the... Jesus, the water of life, right? This new purpose, this new name, all of this now connects us to God. All right? The living water of Christ, who is the water of life, is also the baptizer. He provides his word that ends all thirst, but he also washes with water. Both God's word and remembrances of our baptism refresh us along our sometimes bitter journey in this, in this life. Okay? All right, let's finish it up. Um, anything at the end of chapter 3? Questions? All right, the flood. Um, compare the sanitized version of the flood with reality. Dr. Berg spent a little time kind of painting this picture. What is the sanitized version of the flood? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see it in like nurseries, right? Um, right. The the big the big cartoon uh, giraffe with the big smile on its face, and there's Noah, right, waving. It's just a happy day, right? Um, compare that with real life, with what what really happened at the flood. Oh gosh, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure. And and you can imagine the people who were crying out to Noah, right, as they were swimming around the ark, right? Let us in, pull us up. Yeah, right? Um, how about baptism, the sanitized version of a baptism with reality? What's the sanitized version of a baptism? Sure. Yep, yeah. Oh, pastor, hold on. Uh, you know, we can't have Timmy baptized for six months because it's, you know, it's as soon as all the family can get here, right? We want to use it to be this big old family event, right? Um, that's a sanitized version of baptism. Now, I, I, I get it. Family's important, and it should be. And, and I hope that your family can come. That, that should be a factor for sure. But it should not be a reason to not baptize your kid for two years, right? That, my, my point is, What's the reality of baptism? How does the Bible describe it? How does Dr. Berg describe it? And, and what has to happen before that new life? Right? This is a death. This is a battle to the death. There is a battle being waged for the soul of your child between the forces of the devil and the Lord and his angels. And Jesus says, here is where the victory is given. That is the reality of baptism. To have a sanitized view of it is to say, well, when, whenever we get around to it, we'll be fine. Um, we want to make sure we have the right outfit. We want to pick out the perfect day. You know, we want to make sure this, that, and the that's, that's the cartoony version of the flood. That's what it is. Right? Um, let, let's, let's understand the reality of the flood and the reality of baptism. This is a life or death matter, right? Um, 
if, if your kid was, was born and they, they had to put the, the newborn on all kinds of medicine and on life support, I mean, who, who in their right mind would say, you know what, can we wait to do all that before my family gets here? I'd like them to see, um, you know, him hooked up to all the, the cables and the wires and the life support. I want him to see that whole process because that's really important to me. You go, forget that. Hook him up. Give him the stuff that's going to help him, that's going to save her. That's reality, right? Peter. So my dad was right then that when I was born that he insisted I get baptized within eight days. Mom was sicker than sick and he couldn't do that. And, uh, he said, forget it. Yep. We're having it. Yep. Yeah. Yay, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, honestly, that was one of the biggest arguments Missy and I probably ever got into. Um, both of uh, Thaddeus and, and Emerson were baptized in the hospital on the day they were born. Because she was not leaving that hospital without those kids baptized. Um, of course, when we got here, um, I said, you know what, it's been a really long time since... The, the congregation has seen a baptism, and I, and I want the family of Prince of Peace to, to see that and be a part of it. And I probably sound like a total hypocrite right now, but I waited two days, not two months or two years. Um, and she was not a fan of that. Um, so, yeah, we did it up here. We, you know, we filmed it. We shared it with everybody. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Ah. Oh. Wasn't there? Sure. Okay. Steve wasn't there. Yeah. Sure. Affirmation. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Good for Steve Um, here it is, right? Romans six. Here's the reality. The unsanitized version of baptism. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's what we're talking about. This is life and death stuff. Right? Um, It's the same thing we still try and do today. We still try and sanitize everything. We even try and sanitize death. How do we do that? Yeah, we don't call it death, right? We don't even call them funerals. They're celebrations of life, right? Um, what do we call it instead of death? Oh, they passed away, right? Or so-and-so, you know, um, valiantly fought but lost his battle. We won't say the word death. Right? How else do we sanitize death? Yeah, yeah, right? We talk about it uh, in, in ways that we try and console people, right? Um, even the way, you know, I, in, a, in a sense, I would say I think cremation is a way that has, we have tried to sanitize death because what happens? We don't have to actually see a dead body. What do we see now? We see a beautiful gold chalice, right, in a box or something with a picture of the person when they were like 35 years old. It's like, who is that? That was grandma back in 1962. What? Why would you, you know? Um, we don't want to look in and see a dead body. We want to sanitize it, right? Here it is, right? Baptism doesn't sanitize it, right? Paul talks about it. This is the reality of it. It's life or death. It's burial stuff. Um, and, and, and as Christians, we can say, okay, because we're not left powerless in the face of death. Because we know we have a champion who died and came back from it and says, you will too, right? So we can look at a dead body of a believer and say, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You got nothing. You don't get the final word. Jesus does. So call it death, call it a funeral. Um, Let's be real about it, right? Let's be real about it. Number 10, how can the Bible refer to Noah, an obvious sinner, 
as a righteous man. What implications does this have for us? Thank you. So, how can we say that Noah is righteous if he was obviously a sinner, Bob? He is righteous by faith. That is to say, he is righteous by clinging to the promise and the declaration of God who says, in view of an account of Christ, justified, righteous, holy. Right? Um, this, is the, uh, this is the great Latin phrase that you should always remember. Simul justus et peccator. If you only know one Latin phrase in your life, remember this one. Simul justus et peccator. Not the one that I remembered from Latin class. Semper ubi sub ubi. Always wear underwear. <laughs> um, this one's better. Maybe not as practical, but it's better. We are at the same time, simultaneously, justified and sinner. Just as Jesus has two natures, he is true God and true man, so you are at the same time 100% holy, righteous, justified, and still a rotten, dirty, scoundrel sinner. Um, until, right, we meet Jesus in the cloud, and that's all we are. Okay? When the old will be gone and the new will be all that's left. Okay. Um, what implications does this have for us? Right here. You and me both, right? How does the rainbow at the conclusion of the flood help us to remember key truths of our baptism? Yeah. Yeah. God could have just as easily, he did this a lot, God could have just as easily said, Noah, I'm never going to flood the world again. Go home. But God said, you know what? I am going to attach that promise to something visible that you can see so that when you see it in the sky, you are reminded of my promise. Well, what is baptism? It is a visible seal, a visible sign of the promise of God. So that when you see that baptismal font, even when you're taking a shower in the morning, may it be a vivid and visible reminder of the promises God made to you in baptism. Yeah, Bob. Okay. Well, can can you write it down and we start next week with it? Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't know enough to say. Uh, the question was, you know, the this kind of being the first visible sign of of God's promise. Is it by happenstance that the LGBTQIA plus community is using this for their symbol? I don't know the origins of that. Unfortunately, where that came from, why it was chosen. Um, let let me let me dig on it a little bit. Um, I don't know what the reasoning was behind it. Uh, to answer your question, um, any time that the devil can take something good from God and twist it and make it into now something that promotes or celebrates sin, he's all for it, right? Um, yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's all about, about using the, the rainbow for that, right? Um, because... I mean, just think about 
Think of any good thing in life, any good blessing that God gives you, how easily you and I can turn it into a curse. Money, sex, alcohol, prosperity, power, health, right? I mean, all of these things, we are just chomping at the bit to make them our God. Um, Not because they are in and of themselves bad or sinful. They're actually good. They're all blessings from God. Um, But if the devil can take that good thing and twist it, he's going to do it, right? So let, let me look into it and see if there's actually some background to it or, or not. Um, but I would say, in answer to the question, where it came from, I'm not exactly sure, but I know he absolutely loves the, the distortion of God's promises. Yeah. yeah. All right? Okay, we'll stop there.